0: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Hey there, welcome to The Tint. I'm your host, Scott Bellman, and it's time for another foray into the world of aquariums from a slightly different perspective. You know, seasons kind of come and go. And it came to me the other day when I realized, yeah, we're transitioning here in the northern hemisphere from summer to autumn and it's kind of one of my favorite times of years but things change water levels in aquatic environments you know kind of ebb and flow planet earth goes through weather cycles the angles of the sun changes during the, the, the year the temperatures rise and fall and fishes in aquatic environments face constant challenges and have evolved over eons to meet them through you know evolution adaptation and behaviors change happens constantly in nature And we know we talk about this a lot. And in the aquarium context, um, a lot of aquarists sort of have embraced this over the years. Every Corydorus breeder knows something that we should all know. Environmental manipulations create really unique opportunities to facilitate behavioral changes in our fishes. It's hardly an earth-shattering idea in the aquarium hobby. You know, breeders have been doing this for generations. But I think that the concept of seasonal environmental manipulation deserves some additional consideration. It's been known, you know, for decades that environmental changes to the aquatic environment caused by weather, particularly wet or dry seasons, or rain events or whatever, can stimulate some fishes into spawning. As a fish geek keen on not only replicating the look of our fish's wild habitats, but as much of the function as possible, I just can't help myself but to ponder the possibilities for greater success by manipulating the aquarium environment to simulate what happens in the wild, just because... Probably, again, the group of aquarists who has the most experience and success at incorporating these kinds of environmental manipulations into their breeding practices are Corydoras catfish enthusiasts. Many hobbyists who bred Corydoras utilize the old trick of a 20-30% to 30% water exchange with water that's up to 10 degrees Fahrenheit cooler than the aquarium water is normally maintained at. It seems almost like one of those, are you freaking crazy, a sudden lowering of temperature kind of things? however it works and you almost never hear of any fishes being lost as a result of these seemingly radical temperature manipulations and in fact they'll often spawn because of that because it simulates the onset of rain and I offered you know I often wondered what the rationale behind this kind of a water change was and my understanding is that it's essentially meant to mimic a rainstorm in which an influx of cooler water is the feature it makes a lot of sense right weather conditions are such an important part of the life cycle of as they are with many fishes. Now, still others attempt to simulate a dry spell by allowing the water quality to degrade somewhat. Now, what exactly this means is open to interpretation while simultaneously increasing the aquarium temperature by a, a degree or two. That's an interesting approach, right? That's something that we don't always see. It's followed by a major water exchange with softer water, like straight up RODI, and resetting the tank temp to the tank's normal range of parameters. Again, kind of a rain inundation sort of thing. The variation that I've heard is to do that procedure I just mentioned, accompanied by an increase in current via filter return or a powerhead, which stimulates the increased water volume or flow brought about by this influx of rain into the aquatic ecosystem. It's clever, right? It's interesting. Now, many breeders will simply fast their fishes for a few days, followed by a big binge of food after the temperature drop, apparently stimulating or simulating, excuse me, that increased amount of food that's present in the native waters when the rains come. Again, interesting, right? Insects fall into the water. uh, Other organisms that live in the water reproduce rapidly and the food is available for the fishes. Now, still other hobbyists will reduce the pH of their aquarium water to simulate breeding. And again, I suppose the rationale behind this is once again, to stimulate or to simulate an influx of water from rain or some other external source. It's weather, once again, weather. Another trick I heard from some of my quarry breeder friends uh, from time to time is the idea of tossing in a few alder cones into the tank or vessel where the breeder's eggs are incubating. Now, this decades-old practice is kind of justified by the assertion that alder cones possess some type of antifungal properties. Not entirely off-base with some of the scientific research we found about the allegedly antimicrobial antifungal properties of, you know, leaves and stuff like that. And of course, I have heard and read about recommendations to use the aforementioned catapa leaves, oak leaves, magnolia leaves, et etc, for just this purpose, you know, preventing fungal growth on on eggs. It's interesting. I, again, I think there are more practical ways to do it uh, and more ways that are more substantiated by true scientific research. But for someone that wants to do these kind of interesting experiments that has the resources and ability to do it, that's pretty cool. Again, None of this is earth-shattering. However, it got me thinking about the whole idea of environmental manipulations as part of the routine, I guess the word would be operation, of our botanical method aquariums. Or for that matter, any aquariums. Should we create true seasonal variations for our aquariums as part of our regular practice? Not just when trying to spawn the fish. I mean, changing up lighting duration, intensity, angles, colors, increasing or decreasing water levels or flow regimens within the tank. With all the high-tech LED lighting systems, electronically controlled pumps, and even super advanced programmable heaters, we can vary environmental conditions to mimic what occurs in our fish's natural habitats during seasonal changes like never before. I think it would be really interesting to see what kinds of results we could get, you know, from our fishes if we went further into seasonal environmental manipulations than we've ever been able to do before. And of course, if we look at the natural habitats where many of our fishes originate, we see that these seasonal changes... Have a huge impact on their aquatic ecosystems. For example, in the Amazon, the high water season runs December through April. And during the flooding season, the average temperature is about 86 degrees Fahrenheit, around 12 degrees cooler than the dry season. And during that wet season, the streams and rivers can be as much as six to seven meters higher on the average than they are during the dry season. That's a huge influx of water. And of course, there's more fruits, flowers, and insects during this time of year, which are important food items for many species of fishes. We call that allochthonous input, food that comes from outside the ecosystem. And then during the dry season, well, obviously it means lower water levels, higher temperatures, and an abundance of fishes, mostly engaging in spawning activity. So mud and algal growth on plants, rocks, submerged trees, etc., etc., it's pretty abundant in these waters at various times of the year. Uh, mud and detritus are transported via the overflowing rivers into flooded areas and contribute to the forest leaf litter and other botanical materials accumulating, You know, combining nutrient sources which contribute to the growth of epiphytic algae, which fishes will feed on. Now, During the lower water periods, this sort of organic layer helps compensate for the shortage of other food sources. When the water is at a high period and the forests are inundated, Many terrestrial insects fall into the water, and they're consumed rapidly by the fishes. In general, insects, both terrestrial and aquatic, support a huge community of fishes. It's a big part of our fishes' diet. That's why I love those foods like you know, bug bites and, and other insect-based uh, foods. Rapashi makes some. It's a very natural part of our fishes' diet. Uh, that and fruits and, and, and flowers, for that matter. So it goes without saying that the importance of insects and fruits, which are essentially derived from the flooded forests, are reduced during the dry season when the fishes are confined to open water and feed on different materials. It's interesting how fishes adapt. So I wonder, is a key part of, you know, is part of the key to successfully conditioning and breeding some of these fishes that are found in habitats like this uh, in altering their diets to mimic the seasonal, you know, importance or scarcity of various food items? In other words feeding more insects at one time of the year and perhaps allowing fishes to grade on detritus and bio cover at other times of the year. And then there's those fishes whose life cycle is intimately tied into the seasonal changes, the killifish. We talk about killies a lot because I'm really into them. Any annual or semi-annual killifish species enthusiast will tell you a dozen ways to dry incubate eggs. Again, a beautiful simulation of what happens in nature when the la- eggs are laid in temporary pools. Water recedes and the eggs go into a what's called a diapause where they develop over time until the rains return, once again flooding the water, uh, flooding the the body uh, with water, and then fishes hatch. Now, much of this idea can be uh, applicable to other areas of aquarium practice, right? Yeah, I think so. It's pretty clear that factors such as the air, water, and even soil temperatures, atmospheric humidity, the water level, the local winds, as well as climatic variables have profound influence on the life cycle and reproductive manner of the fishes that reside in these types of dynamic tropical environments like savannas and floodplains and so forth. In my so-called urban agapo experiments, we get to see a little microcosm of this whole seasonal process and the influences of you know, weather, in our case flooding and desiccation, And it's really amazing to see the fishes, how they react in in these types of habitats. And of course, all this ties into that intimate relationship between land and water, doesn't it? Now, there's been a fair amount of research and speculation by both scientists and hobbyists about the processes which occur when terrestrial materials like leaves and botanical materials enter into aquatic environments. And most of it's based on field observations, which is cool. Now, as hobbyists, we have a unique opportunity to observe firsthand the impact in the effects of this material in our own aquariums. I love this aspect of our practice of sort of creating interesting possibilities to embrace and create more naturally functioning systems while possibly even validating, and you say that in air quotes, but validating the field work done by scientists. We can replicate those processes and, and uh, conditions. And it's really neat to see if we see analogous behaviors in our fishes. And of course, there's lots of interesting bits of information that we can interpret from nature when planning, creating and operating our aquariums. It goes without saying that there's implications for both the biology and chemistry of aquatic habitats when, you know, stuff like leaves and seed pods and stuff and there's the the, you know, the aquatic ecosystem. Many of these things are things that we as hobbyists observe every day in our aquariums. You want an example? Well, here's something interesting. I found a lab study that Uh, found that when leaves are saturated in water, biofilms, which form on the leaves, uh, biofilms reach their peak when other nutrients like nitrate and phosphate, etc., tested at their lowest limits in the water. And this is interesting to me because it seems that in our botanical method aquariums, biofilms tend to occur really early on when one would assume that these compounds are at their highest concentrations in our aquariums. And I say assume because I haven't really tested for it, and I should. But biofilms are essentially the byproduct of bacterial colonization, meaning that there must be a lot of food for the bacteria at some point if there's a lot of biofilm, right? Mm, interesting. More questions. So does this imply that the biofilms arrive on the scene and peek out really quickly as an indication that there's actually less nutrient in the water? Or is the nutrient bound up in the biofilms? And when our fishes and other animals consume them, does this provide a significant source of sustenance for them? Hmm. Interesting, right? Oh, and then there's another interesting observation. When leaves fall into streams, field studies have shown that their nitrogen content typically will increase. Now, you're asking, why is this important? Well, scientists see this as evidence of microbial colonization, which is correlated by a measured increase in oxygen consumption. So I find this interesting because those rare disasters that we see in our tanks when when we do see them, which is fortunately not very often... Those rare disasters with botanical method aquariums are caused by the hobbyist adding a really large quantity of leaves and botanicals all at once to an established aquarium, resulting in the fishes gasping at the surface, which is a sign of oxygen depletion, right? Makes sense. So I find that really interesting. There are interesting clues about these processes that we can derive from observing natural ecosystems. And there's interesting clues about the process of decomposition of leaves when they enter into our aquatic ecosystems. They have implication for our use of botanicals and the way we manage our aquariums. I think that the simple fact that pH and oxygen tend to go down quickly when leaves are initially submerged in pure water during lab tests gives us some sort of an idea of what to expect. Now, a lot of the initial environmental changes will happen rather rapidly and then stabilize over time, which, of course, leads me to conclude... That the development of sufficient populations of organisms to process the incoming botanical load is a critical part of the establishment of our botanical method aquariums. It just is. Now, fungal populations, which we talk about a lot, fungal populations are as important in the process of breaking down leaves and botanical materials in the water as are the higher organisms like insects and crustaceans and even fish, which functions as what we call shredders. The shredders, the animals that feed upon the materials that fall into the streams, produce this stuff that scientists call fine particulate organic matter. And that's where the fungi and the other microorganisms make use of the leaves and materials. They process them into fine sediments. Now, look, material, stuff from the outside of the environment, can also include dissolved organic matter carried into the streams and redistributed by water movement. And the process, it happens surprisingly quickly. In a study I found uh, carried out in tropical rainforests in Venezuela, decomposition rates were really fast, with 50% of the leaf mass lost in less than 10 days. That's interesting, but is it tremendously surprising to us as botanical method aquarium enthusiasts? I mean, we see leaves begin to break down in a matter of a couple of weeks, right, after they're introduced into the the water. At least most of the leaves that we use do that. With complete breakdown typically happening, you know, in a month or so with certain leaves like katapa and so forth. And the biofilms and the fungi and algae, they're still found in our aquariums in in significant quantities throughout this whole process. So what does this all mean? What are the implications for aquariums and operating our aquariums? I think that it means that we need to continue to foster the biological diversity of animals in our aquarium, embracing life at all levels, from bacteria to fungi to crustaceans to worms, and ultimately our fishes, all forming the basis of a closed ecosystem and perhaps a food web of sort for our little aquatic microcosms. It's an interesting concept, something we've touched on many times here, but it's a really fascinating field for research for hobbyists. And we all have the opportunity to participate in this most intimate, on a most intimate level by simply observing what's going on in our tanks every single day. We've talked about this topic so many times and I just can't let it go. Biodiversity in itself is interesting enough, but when you factor in these seasonal changes and cycles, it becomes an almost foundational component for a new way of running or operating our botanical style aquariums. Again, this operating in the aquariums, I find that fascinating. Now consider this, like for example, wet seasons, we talk about this a lot, but in the wet season in the Amazon runs November to June, rains almost every day. What's really interesting is that the surrounding Amazon rainforest is estimated by some scientists to create as much as 50% of its own precipitation. And it does this because of the humidity present in the rainforest itself from water vapor present on plant leaves, which contributes to the formation of rain clouds. It's an interesting water cycle. So, yeah, the trees in the Amazon release enough moisture through photosynthesis to create low-level clouds and literally generate rain, according to a study that I stumbled on in the proceeding of the National Academy of Sciences here in the U.S. And it's crazy, but it makes a lot of sense, right? Okay, that's a really cool cocktail soundbite. And probably not going to happen in our homes. We're not going to be generating rainstorms inside your living room. But it's interesting, right? What what happens to the aquatic environment, you know, that our fishes live in when it rains? Well, for one thing, rain performs the dual functions of diluting organics while transporting more nutrient and materials across the ecosystem. So, what happens in many regions of Amazonia, and likewise in many other tropical locales worldwide, is the evolution of some of our most compelling ecological niches. There are all based on the cycle of rain and terrestrial dependency and so forth. Now, again, it can go on and on and on. We've literally just scratched the surface. And the opportunity to apply what we know about climates and seasonal changes which occur where our fishes originate to incorporate on a broader scale the practices which our Cory enthusiasts enthusiast friends employ on all sorts of fishes is irresistible. There's so much to learn, so much to experiment, and so much to gain from doing it. Are you going to take a chance and try something different? I think we all should. Stay fascinated, stay intrigued, stay observant, stay creative, stay astute, and always stay wet. Until next time, this is Scott Feldman from Tint and Aquatics. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and I look forward to seeing you on the next installment of The tin.